I'm Matt Williams, and this is the Wild Voices Project. Today, I'm in conversation with Satish Kumar, writer, philosopher, former Jain monk, editor of Resurgence magazine, and Earth Pilgrim. Um, so do you want me to explain a little bit first about the project and refresh yeah. your memory? Yes, yes. <laughs> so um, it's a project that I'm running in my spare time. It's called the Wild Voices Project. Yes. It's a series of recorded podcasts yeah. with people who are loosely related to the theme of saving nature mm. in some way. And um, the reason... So the podcast is uh, um, uh, oral or written? Audio. Audio. Okay. Yeah, audio. audio. Fine. Um, and the idea for the reason for doing the project is to try and give profile to people who contribute in some way to saving yeah. nature. Yeah. The reason for using the podcast format is I listen to, I don't know if you listen to On Being, which is an American program. Yeah, yeah. 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 So a little bit like On Being is to have a really long kind of, you know, provide time for a proper conversation. Yes. Rather than so much of our media, which. Yeah, too short. 30 Twitter seconds, three minutes. Exactly. One minute. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, and Facebook. They, I don't do Twitter and Facebook. <laughs> um, no, that's fine. Cake start. Cool, start. great. Yeah. So I'll start how I always start, which yeah. is by asking, um, what role did nature play for you as a child and growing up? My mother was a naturalist. She loved walking in nature. She had a small farm of about five acres, and that was about two miles from our home. So every morning we would walk the farm and every evening we walk back. So that was my introduction to nature. And when you are walking, you look around, you see the trees, you see the flowers, you see the bees, you see the butterflies, you see and experience nature. When you are walking, um, walking and, and the process of walking and traveling is as important as arriving. Mm. And so my introduction, and I was, I remember when I was five year old, six year old, seven year old, very early age, my mother walking with me to the farm, through nature, by the lake, uh, and the clouds, the, the monsoon clouds, the dark clouds, and the evening light um, in the sky, and the sunset, all that is still vivid in my memory. Um, and I wanted to ask about the, the importance, I mean, you said a little bit already, the process of walking and the importance of it. A lot of the young people that I'm friends with and myself, we spend a lot of time outside bird watching and in nature. We're wildlife enthusiasts and that involves a lot of walking. What, what, what importance does the act of simply walking carry uh, the, for you? The most important for me is when you are walking, you are connected. When you are in a train or in a plane, more particularly in a plane, you are disconnected. But even in a train, even in a car, even in a bicycle, you are disconnected because you are focusing on the place of arrival and not the process of walking. Mm. And so uh, w when, you are walk when, when you are walking, you are in the process of traveling. And that traveling becomes an experience in itself. Mm. And you are connected with the soil, you are connected with your eyes, with the trees and the sky and the moon and the sun and the stars. Depends when you are walking, because I also like walking at night. 
and, and when your eyes see the stars and the moon, that's so wonderful. And also, so you are in touch. And the most difficult problem of our time is disconnection. Mm. We think that we are separate from nature, we are separate from people, we are separate from other countries. This separation has created our ecological crisis. Separation has created our environmental problems because we think that nature is separate and we can uh, exploit it for our use, uh, but it doesn't affect us, it doesn't affect nature. We can use it as we like. So while walking, you are connecting, connecting, only connect. That was Ian Foster said. And walking is a perfect way of only connecting. So you are connecting with the soil, you are connecting with the grass, you are connecting with nature, you are connecting with air, connecting with water, connecting with the clouds, connecting with the rains, connecting with everything, connecting with people. When I'm walking, I meet people who I say hello. Even if I don't know them, I smile at them. They smile at me. You connect with people. So walking is the best way to connect. The last person who I spoke to, Melissa Harrison, the writer, we had a very interesting conversation about walking as well because... Um, for one of her books she did some research and she tried to walk an old traveller's route north of London the yeah. a, which has now turned into the A5 yes yes um, and I think we both found in walking that um, on a route that you travel every single day in a car when you walk it you experience new yeah. things yeah. but also she found that trying to travel that historic route she thought you know oh, I'll be able to walk through the countryside and through the fields and she actually found it very, very difficult to trace the route because our land and our countryside, in this country at least, and our infrastructure is set up for the car or for the train, but not for people to travel by foot anymore, yes, except yes. for city centres maybe. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I think more and more city centres should become pedestrianised because if you want to connect with people and, and relax and, and, and look around, uh, and I think every city should have squires where, so that you can walk through the squires. In London, in old London, there are squires. Um, Bloomsbury Squire or Tavistock Squire or Golden Squire or whatever. And so there are trees and there are children can come there, families can come there. You live around the squire and you can walk to the, uh, the squire, play uh, there, children can play. All that is wonderful. So I think cities should be made for walking. And my ideal city is that you should be able to walk from one end of the city to the other end within one hour. And you should be able to walk to your school, to your hospital, mm. to your surgery, to your bookshop, to your um, grocery shop, to any need you have, you should be able to do it by walking. Mm. Because tr uh, the... the um, buses are congesting our roads in London and the cars are congesting and the pleasure of living in the city has gone because of over con uh, congestion mm -hmm. uh, by cars and, and buses and, and trams and trains and so on. So I would like to humanize the cities and the only way to humanize is to pedestrianize it. And when you have more pedestrians, you will find cities are more enjoyable. Mm. Um. I've been, I've been going back to some of your books in the past few days and I've read some of your works in the past as well. Um, you write that your mother said that nature is the greatest teacher? Yes, yes. Would you mind saying a little when bit more about that? When we were walking uh, to our farm, as I was a child, I will always be curious because as you know, children always, why, 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 what is this, why? And so I will always ask questions. And, and so my mother used to say that nature is our teacher and in fact greatest teacher 
even greater than the Buddha. And that I said, why? How can anybody be greater teacher than the Buddha? Because in India, everybody says the Buddha was our greatest teacher. So my mother would say that where did Buddha get his enlightenment? I said, while under sitting a tree, mm. while sitting under a tree. So my mother said, there you are. He got enlightenment because he was sitting under a tree. And he realized how everything is connected by observing the tree and how everything is interconnected, uh, interdependent arising. That's a kind of Buddhist idea. So uh, the, everything is in harmony. Uh, you see uh, the sun is in harmony with the soil, the soil is in harmony with the roots of the tree, and the birds sit on the, on the uh, tree branches, and the rain nourishes the tree uh, roots. Everything is connected, and that is the teachings of the Buddha, and he learned from nature. So nature is our greatest teacher, and you should learn from nature how generous is nature. You plant one seed in the ground, it gives you a thousand fruit year after year for five years, 10 years, 20 years, 50 mm. years, depending on the kind of tree you have. And so generosity of the tree, abundance of the tree, and abundance of nature that you learn, and unconditional love and unconditional compassion of nature on people. Nature is benign. From nature we get our food. From nature we get our water. From nature we get our air to breathe. From nature we get our clothes to wear. From nature we get our wood and stones to make houses. Everything is provided by nature. Nature is benign and therefore we must learn from nature and nature never discriminates. When you go to an apple tree, it never discriminates whether you are rich or poor, whether you are educated or uneducated, whether you are a sin, sinner or saint. Whoever you are, you can have apple. That kind of generosity and unconditional compassion of tree, that is the learning that we have to do. So nature is the greatest teacher. That was my mother's teaching. And you think that we, in some societies, have stopped listening to nature and stopped learning from it? We have, because first of all, we think that we are superior to nature. Mm. Human species are superior to nature. Nature is there for us. So we are somehow like an emperors of the environment, emperors of nature, emperors of the Mother Earth, the planet Earth. And therefore, we can do what we like. We can cut down the rainforest, left, right and center. We can overfish the oceans and pollute the oceans with plastic. We can pollute the rivers. Uh, we can pollute the air uh, and greenhouse gases, create global warming, climate change. We can put animals in factory farms and, and the pigs and chickens and cows. They never see the light of the day for whole of their life. Mm -hmm. We do to nature all these cruel things and that is showing that we are disconnected. And so our industrial society, our cities, they think that nature is only for a holiday. Nature is only for a kind of weekend. Uh, and their life is more in the industry. So industrialization, urbanization, and, and a kind of living in the offices and, and the cars. So you are living always in the box. Uh, your houses are air conditioned, so you have no natural air. You sit in front of a television. You don't see real nature. You see uh, David Attenborough or some other nature program, which is nice, uh, mm. better than nothing. Yeah. But real experience is to be yourself in nature, outdoor and on Dartmoor or on Exmoor or on Yorkshire Moor or, or, or the kind of Welsh hills or, or mountains of Scotland and then the lakes and the, and the kind of sea. 
So uh, our modern industrial urban uh, society has become disconnected from nature and that is the part of our problem. So if we want to find a solution, we have to reconnect with nature and when we are reconnected with nature, for me, nature is my religion. For me, nature is my temple, mm. my church, my mosque. I don't need to go to temple or mosque or church. I go to Dartmoor and I go to wild places and I enjoy. And for me, nature is my paradise. I don't need to wait until I die and go in the next life to find paradise. I find paradise here and now mm. in nature, in mm. the wild beauty of Dartmoor, in the wild beauty of Dart River and, and, and all that what I visit. So for me, uh, nature is my God. Um. I wanted to ask about a moment that you describe in um, in No Destination, where you talk about a moment of awakening, and you speak about um, the importance of properly engaging with the world. It's when you decide, I think, to stop being a monk, and you read Gandhi's book, and yes, you say yes. you say the importance of engaging with the world rather yeah. than retreating from it. Absolutely, absolutely, because <coughs> because I was a monk. I was retreating from the world. And Mahatma Gandhi said that how many people can become spiritual and live in monastic order? Only a few. Majority of people are not going to live in monastic order. So does it mean that spirituality is exclusively for those who retire and retreat from the world and live in a monastic order and escape from the reality of life? No, Gandhi said, that reality is that nat nature and spirituality should be available for everybody and not exclusively for those who live in the monastic order. And so how do you do it? You do it by coming in the world and changing your intention and motivation behind your action. So if you are, uh, if you are eating, you can eat to live or you can live to eat. Mm. And it's a big difference. Mm. If you live to eat, you have come down to a materialistic level. Mm. But if you eat to live, to serve, to create, to be in the service of humanity and the earth and, and create art and music and, and painting and dance and, and a kind of imagination and creativity, then you've touched uh, the mind of God. And so uh, live in the world. And if you do with right motivation and right intention, that even your politics can be spiritual mm. and ecological. Mm. Even your business can be spiritual and ecological if you do it for the service of community, for the service of humanity. Because we need food and we need farmers, we need shopkeepers, we need uh, weavers, we need um, builders, we need them. But they have to do it in the service of community and relationship with the community, enhancement of community, human community, and not for exploitation, mm -hmm. for prestige, for power, for control, for money, for profit. Those are materialistic values. So it's the values and the motivation and the intention which makes a difference. Mm -hmm. And that was the deep and profound and radical message for me as a monk to read. And when I read it, I shivered. I had a goose pimple and I said, I cannot be a monk. I have to be in the world and I have to practice this spirituality in everyday life, compassion in everyday life. Because in the world today, there is no compassion. If you look at um, uh, the way bosses treat their workers, no compassion. Mm. The way workers treat the bosses, no compassion. The, uh, um, uh, the exploit, there's a subtle violence 
that we do to people. No compassion. And we have no compassion for trees. We have no compassion for animals. We have no... So Gandhi was saying to bring compassion in everyday life. That is spirituality. I think what makes it so accessible is that you talk about everyday life and you talk about enacting this through very small, very humble actions. It humble doesn't, actions. doesn't have to be a very grand or brave or dangerous action. It can be something something small and your everyday acts where you embody this. The most extraordinary way you can be is to be ordinary. Mm. Because ordinary is most extraordinary. Because you can see the tree is ordinary. The birds are ordinary. The rivers are ordinary. Every day you see, you see by, sit by the river dart, because we are here by the river dart. But this is the most extraordinary gift to the earth. So uh, you don't have to be kind of adventurous and take risk. And, and you can take some risk, but the most important thing is to make ordinary into extraordinary mm. by your creativity, by your imagination, by your motivation, by your intention, by your vision, by your values, all those things matter. Those are the kind of uh, qualities you bring to the quantity of the world. But you di you took something ordinary, walking, and you mm. did turn it into something extraordinary yes. through your epic, in the true sense of the word, journey from India to Washington. Absolutely, absolutely. That is absolutely right, because uh, walking is ordinary. Everybody can do it. Everybody has two legs. There's nothing special about walking. Uh, but because I decided to walk for peace and not just walk to walk, I, I love walking to walk as well. Mm. But in this particular case, uh, I w turned ordinary into extraordinary was because I walked for peace, for disarmament, and to meet people, to communicate with people, to experience the unity of the world, to experience that in spite of our differences, that I'm an Indian, uh, others are Pakistanis, others are Russians, uh, I'm a Hindu, others are Muslims, others are Christians, others are Jews, others are Buddhists, um, uh, all those differences are diversity. So that kind of embracing the diversity and not thinking in a narrow identity way that I am a Hindu, you are a Muslim, this is creating division. So by walking for peace and for harmony and for understanding humanity and understanding the unity of the earth and unity of life turned my ordinary walking and I was doing nothing, just taking one step after another step after another step on a, a, a path was nothing special and yet that became an epic two and a half years of walking, 8,000 miles of walking after eight pairs of shoes, I came back. <laughs> and so that is the kind of uh, good example to show that ordinary action can become extraordinary by your vision and by your intention and by your values and by your motivation. And what did you learn through doing that journey? I learned that diversity is to be celebrated and not turn diversity into divisions. At the moment, people turn diversity into division and say, oh, um, uh, I'm black, you are white, I'm um, English, you are, uh, you are um, French, I'm American, you are Russian, and therefore we have a conflict of interest. Mm. We have a, a clash of interest uh, in the name of religion, in the name of nationality, in the name of race, in the name of gender, whatever the difference. I learned that beyond, beyond all these differences, we have a unity of life. We are all members of one human community. And beyond that, we are all members of one earth community. 
planet community, earth home. Eco means home. Ecos, mm. Greek word ecos. Yeah. And from ecos comes ecology. And ecology means knowledge of home. Mm. And, and ecos also uh, is the root word for economy. And that means management of home. Mm -hmm. And home is our whole planet. In the wisdom of Greek philosophers, the entire planet Earth is our home. Earth home, planet home. And so if you, I learned that by walking through Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iran, Azerbaijan, Armenia, Georgia, by, by the Black Sea, into Russia and Belarusia, Poland, Germany, Belgium, France, England, and then I took a boat to America, and then Japan, and, and back to India. Two and a half years, I saw this diversity, and I celebrate diversity. Why to fight against diversity? Evolution has taken billions of years to give us this wonderful diversity, and now we are turning that into divisions. Mm. Just imagine, at the time of the Big Bang, there was a nothing. Eh? And evolution has favored diversity, has worked hard for billions of years to create this diversity. Why are we turning this diversity into divisions and, and fights and conflicts and wars and superiority and inferiority and all those kind of uh, problems? And so this is why I learned that we are diverse and diversity should be celebrated. And beyond diversity, there's a unity of life and unity of earth. And we set up those divisions not just between different peoples or cultures, but also between ourselves and other species as exactly. well. Exactly. Right? Other species. Other yeah. species. So I learned that all species have intrinsic value. Mm. It is not that uh, other species like the forests and the rivers and the animals and the birds are valuable only in terms of their uh, eco-services that they provide and mm -hmm. offer to humanity. That is a wrong way to look at it. I think nature has intrinsic value. The tree is good not because it gives me oxygen, not because it gives me fruit, not because it gives me wood. Nature has intrinsic value. That tree is good because it is tree in itself, by itself, mm -hmm. for itself. And that gives me uh, conviction that we have to talk not only about human rights, but also rights of nature. Nature has as much right to exist as humans. And therefore, humans and nature are equal. So when you want to have a, an apple, you go to an apple tree, not to Satish Kumar. But when you want to talk about something, you come to Satish Kumar. So uh, Satish Kumar is useless when you want an apple. <laughs> Only apple tree can give you Although apple. I've heard you planted a lot of apple trees. I have planted a lot of <laughs> apple trees. And still, only the apple tree can give you apples. Uh, and therefore, uh, we must value nature equally. Uh, so this idea of equality, we talk about equality among humans. Egalité, liberty, fraternity. Mm -hmm. I say equality should be not only among humans, but among all species. Mm -hmm. Humans and animals and birds and insects and 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 and, uh, and a kind of bacteria even we should respect without bacteria we will not be alive bacteria keeps us alive and therefore um, i would say rights of nature is as important as rights of humans mm. um i want to come back to that idea of ecosystem services and how we view nature and how we frame it um, i also wanted to ask um about um some of the figures you've met who you've learned a lot from and who have influenced you most in particular your meeting with martin luther king and with vandana shiva as well yeah and i wanted to ask what you learned from um, them no the thing is that martin luther king had made a wonderful speech in 1963 when he he and hundreds of thousands of 
black people walked and white people, black people and white people together walked, uh, marched on Washington. Mm. And in August 1963, and he made this wonderful speech, I have a dream speech. And I was so inspired by that speech. And I said it to myself, I said, like uh, Martin Luther King has a dream to unite black and white people. I shared that dream even more because I want to see not only black and white people, but poor and rich, um, east and west, but also humans and nature mm. were walking together in harmony. That was my dream. In any case, I wrote to Martin Luther King and I said, Dr. King, you have a great dream. I also have a small dream and my dream is to meet you. And he wrote to me back and he said, yes, India is my great inspiration and Mahatma Gandhi is my great inspiration and you have walked from India for peace. I would like to meet you. Mm. Please come. So I, with my friend E.P. Menon and I, both of us went <coughs> and met him. And that was one of the most inspiring uh, meeting of my life, I would say. I have met many wonderful people, but he is one of the highlight. And he, many things he said, but one thing strikes, uh, and, and I remember very uh, strongly, is that he said, I am using nonviolence as a weapon to protest against racial discrimination. Mm -hmm. But this is not merely a technique to protest. Nonviolence is my way of life. And I want to practice nonviolence in every day, every moment of life. And using nonviolence as a way of protest is only occasional when we have to use it rather than violence. I want to use nonviolence because that is the teachings of Jesus Christ. That is the inspiration and a real practical example of Mahatma Gandhi and many others. So I want to do that. So that kind of bringing nonviolence as a way of life and a way of protesting two together mm -hmm. was very inspiring. And, and, and at that time, what a time it was that when Martin Luther King was uh, fighting against racial discrimination, there was no proper vote, uh, voting rights for the black people. Mm. And even then he had hope that things can change and things have changed. Not yet perfectly. No. There's a lot of discrimination and a lot of tension and a lot of violence still going on against the black people. Nevertheless, there is a black man in the White House. Yes. And therefore, some change has happened and more change will happen because this discrimination in the name of color cannot be accepted. And so Martin Luther King was one of the great inspiration. And you also mentioned Vandana Shiva. Yes. She's my great friend. And I work with her. When I started to organize Schumacher lectures in mm. Bristol, I invited Vandana Shiva to give a Schumacher lecture. When I was starting Schumacher College, I invited Vandana Shiva to teach here. And she has been here at least 10 times to teach here at Schumacher College. And then um, she has a 50-acre farm, a biodiverse, organic farm mm. with a seed bank yeah. in India, North India. And so I went to visit her there and I helped her to create a, a center of learning um, at uh, her farm, on her farm uh, in North India, near Dehradun. And so I go there every year 
and, and a teach there, a, a course called Gandhi and Globalization. And so uh, the course is about um, self-organizing, self-managing, uh, local economy, uh, self-governance, uh, well-being of all beings, uh, equality among humans and, and natural um, beings, all those kind of values of ecology, of environment, of spirituality, all those values come together in this course. So I, she is my friend, she's my colleague, uh, she's my kind of uh, uh, work partner. We work together. <laughs> so there's a difference of, a difference of kind of relationship. Yeah. With Martin Luther King, I only met once. Yes. And he was a kind of inspiration and he was a kind of my mentor in a kind of indirect way. Um, by reading, he gave me a copy of his book. Right. Martin Luther King. He gave me a copy of his book called Stride Toward Freedom. And when I returned to India, I translated that into Hindi because I wanted to introduce Martin Luther King's ideas to Hindi-speaking people mm. uh, because not everybody can read English and I wanted everybody to know what Martin Luther King thinks. And therefore, I translated that book into Hindi and was published and that was my kind of thanks to Martin Luther King. So that was the first time it had been translated since... Uh, first time. Okay, that's first pretty time, cool. First time a book by Martin Luther King was translated by me. That's quite nice, the circular kind of Martin Luther King taking inspiration from India and from Mahatma Gandhi and then you taking his work and yes. translating it back for, you know, generations afterwards Absolutely. to learn from him. Absolutely. So what was it that, um, that brought you to the UK? Um... <coughs> Um, the reason I settled and lived in UK is because of E.F. Schumacher. <coughs> E.F. Schumacher, who wrote Small is Beautiful, mm. and in the book, there's a great essay called Buddhist Economics, was very inspired by Buddhism, by Gandhi, by India, by Burma, by the East generally. And I was on a visit to England and I met E.F. Schumacher and John Papworth, who was founding editor of Resurgence. And both of them wanted me to become the editor of Resurgence. And particularly Schumacher said to me that your ideas are very compatible with the ideas of Resurgence and therefore you should become the editor. And I said, reluctantly then no i want to go back to india and shivaka said well why i said i am a gandhian and i want to work in the gandhian movement and so i want to go back to india i said but satish there are many gandhians in india we need one in england <laughs> so stay and make resurgence a gandhian magazine mm. which includes decentralized economy decentralized politics, uh, ecological worldview, holistic worldview, spirituality, all the th things that you believe in and Gandhi believed in need to be brought in Europe, in Britain. And therefore this confluence of the East and the West will be a wonderful thing. And so uh, an East person, Eastern person like you, editing a Western magazine will be a good platform for you. And so he was very persuasive. And so I said, all right, Mr. Schumacher, if I become the editor, will you contribute in every issue of Resurgence? <laughs> and after a minute's thought, he said, all right, that's the deal. If you become the editor, I will contribute in every issue. And he contributed 35 articles in Resurgence altogether. And we published that as a book. 
by Schumacher. And so it was Schumacher um, who really inspired me to become the editor of Resurgence magazine. And with my wife, June, we edited the magazine. So for the last 43 years, I have been editing Resurgence magazine. And now I am planning to um, stand down and, and let somebody else do it. But I have been, they say that I have been the longest serving editor in Britain of any one single magazine. Really? Continuously. <laughs> 43 years. And it's a good magazine and I love reading it. Oh, good. And uh, some of your pieces that you contribute to it as well yeah. in particular. Yeah. Um, I want, so I wanted to come back to how this confluence of Eastern and Western thought. And I was wondering if for people who haven't heard of it before, if you could say a little bit more about your your concept of the three qualities of Rajasic, Tamasic and Sattvic yeah. and how those link to uh, <coughs> your ecological thinking. Yeah. No, the Sattvic, Rajasic, Tamasic, these are the three words which come from Indian uh, philosophy, but they are relevant to our time. Now, uh, these three words, I call them a compass. They show you the way, right way to live. Mm -hmm. A way of life which is in harmony and in balance with all living beings. And so the first quality is sattvic, for which we should aim. Sattvic word comes from sat, which is truth, which is authentic, which is real, which is natural. And so first thing we have to think is that whatever I do, I have to have this touchstone. Is this authentic? Is this natural? Or is it contrived mm. and pompous? So um, food, is it natural? Is it authentic? Is it lo local? Is it refreshing? Is it healthy? Those are the qualities you choose. Your clothes, why are you wearing them? To show off? To impress? Or to keep yourself healthy and warm? and cool. Mm. House, what kind of house do you have? Is it uh, a comfortable, simple, elegant, for good living, or just to show off? Hmm? Palaces or prisons. So uh, in everything you do, whether it's a food or clothes or house or communication, what kind of communication you have? Is it to show off? Or is it to really touch people's hearts? Um, giving, is it sattvic giving? How do you give? Are you giving just to show your compassion and, 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 and relationship uh, with the uh, needy? Or you are showing off? Mm. So, <coughs> or you are condemning the, the recipient. Say, why are you begging? Why are you taking uh, something from me? Why aren't you working? You are young, strong, go and work. That kind of attitude. So, Authentic, simple, and true, natural way of being is called sattvic. It's a kind of Ayurvedic principle. It's a kind of Indian philosophy principle. Uh, it's in Bhagavad Gita, it's in Upanishads, it's everywhere. And then pompous way is Rajsik. Show off, designers' labels, mm. importance of famous name restaurant. Importance of show, uh, the, uh, cutlery and cockery and how the table is laid rather than the quality of food. So when you become showy, pompous, glamorous, gracious 
is sattvic. Glamorous is rajasic. That's the difference. And so when you do glamorous and show off and impress, so always this egotistical way of being. Uh, I want name, fame, um, control, power, uh, money, profit, uh, prestige, awards, uh, recognition. All those things are kind of ego-related. They are all come into rajasic. But the tamasic is very dark. Tamasic means heavy and dark. Mm -hmm. and, and so it's exploitative. So in food, for example, stale food, in the Indian way of thinking, uh, would be that um, spirit, for example, um, whiskies and, and those kind of things, which make you drunk. Also, maybe sattvic, rajasic, tamasic could be also differences between the quantity. Mm. If you do like a medicinal way, small quantity of something, even a poisonous can be sattvic. But if you take it to drink and become drunk and, and then you misuse your, um, your time in kind of violence or beating your wife or something like that. Because mm. there are some drunken people who uh, spend all their money rather than food and children are starving but they use money to buy drinks. It's not the uh, thing itself but your approach to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that approach makes a difference between whether it's a rajasic or a tamasic or sattvic. And so uh, in our food, uh, we can have stale food, um, junk food, uh, sugary food, fatty food, salty food, um, um, far distant uh, imported food, overpackaged food. They are all either rajasic or tamasic. So in the same way, clothes, housing, communication, everything. And so in housing, for example, tamasic prisons are tamasic. Um, uh, these high-rise buildings where there's no... Uh, fresh air, there's no fresh um, light, no natural light, and, and you are dependent on just concrete, concrete. That kind of thing, they're very tamasic. And you've, what I found interesting, and I work in the nature conservation sector, was yeah. that you've mapped these three qualities onto s some of the nature conservation organisations, the mainstream ones that we yeah. have in this country and perhaps in other countries, and also into our approach to how we see nature and conservation. Yes. and. Yeah. Things like ecosystem services yeah. and natural yeah. capital. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Now, the natural uh, nature system services, if some people are just using it as a metaphor, that I can understand. Mm. But if you start to put monetary value on nature, that is dangerous. So there is a kind of big... Also, there is a sattvic, rajasic, tamasic in there too. Mm. If it is only just to as a kind of as a matter of argument you can say but look if you are destroying that forest how valuable that forest is even for humans so as a metaphor as a sake of argument you can use it but in real sense in your consciousness in your psyche in your soul in your in your real thinking you must not think that uh, money can buy trees Trees have their intrinsic value. Mm -hmm. Like money cannot buy humans. You can pay them. You can pay them just for the sake of convenience. But you cannot value a human being in terms of money. Mm -hmm. So if you cannot say uh, that you are worth um, 10 million pounds, uh, a human being, uh, because you bring me profit or something, you're an engineer, you're a doctor or something, Human beings are not valued in terms of money, even though you pay for it, for them, for their work. In the same way, you can pay for land, or you can pay for a house, you can pay for um, a piece of garden, but that is only a matter of convenience. That's not 
to have in our consciousness, in our psyche, in our real value system to think that I can put monetary value on land or garden or forest or rivers or oceans or anything like that. Mm. That's my argument. Ecosystem services are sometimes um, thinking, uh, people who use that uh, kind of logic, thinking that you can buy, uh, you can put monetary value. So some people argue that um, ecosystem services and natural capital are so important because we need to save nature and the environment now when we're running out of time. And it's also the only way that the people who hold power really think and it's the way to appeal to them. I wanted to ask you, um, do you think sort of our five year terms of government and decision makers matter and do you think we should be trying to influence them or do you think actually the change that we need to protect nature is much more long term and is kind of outside that system letter letter yeah it's a long term and and we must as a movement we must work at both levels uh, bottom up and mm. top down but bottom up is more important than top down mm. if the public opinion is there the politicians will listen mm. more. Therefore, creating a grassroots movement of public opinion, for me, the real superpower is the power of public opinion. Mm. Superpower is not America or Russia or China or Britain or France or any other country. Superpower, real superpower for me is power of the public opinion. The public says that we want to protect our forests and our oceans and our soil, our animals, Politicians will legislate and follow. Real change never comes from the White House. Real change never comes from uh, the 10 Downing Street mm -hmm. or the Kremlin. Real change comes from Martin Luther King, mm -hmm. Mahatma Gandhi, Nelson Mandela. They built a grassroots movement against apartheid. Real power came from feminist power. Feminism didn't come from 10 Downing Street or White House. Feminism came from great feminist women who created a, a strong uh, um, power uh, for vote, for um, women to have a, a right to vote. Uh, all those kind of movements came from grassroots. Uh, slavery ended uh, because of the grassroots movement. Then government legislates, parliament le legislates, and puts a rubber stamp that yes, we uh, must make it illegal, uh, uh, like racial discrimination mm -hmm. or slavery. And so, um, so we must work top down as well. We must influence the government, we must try to influence the media, we must influence the, the parliamentarian and so on. But extra power, uh, extra energy, extra time we must allow and devote to build grassroots movement. And the environmental movement must work together, whether you are Friends of the Earth or Greenpeace or WWF or Conservation Society or Wildlife Trust or National Trust or whatever organization you are. These organizations are not by it themselves sufficient. Those are, we must go beyond our silos of mm -hmm. organizations and work together to create a strong public opinion and that will uh, put uh, pressure on top uh, um, uh, administration of the governments and then change will come. So I work in what I would call the youth nature community. Yeah. Young people, by which I mean sort of under 30. Um, and there are fewer and fewer children I think today who are connected to nature and that's a really big problem but there's also a growing small community of young people who are setting up their own organizations not going through the big NGOs but saying 
we care about nature, we're going to spend more time in it and speak out more publicly about its decline and what that means for our generation. What advice would you give to them? Well, that is a good thing that uh, people are taking small initiative at a local level because in our schools, mm. children are suffering from um, nature deficit disorder. Mm. And in our schools, they are all sitting in the classroom, artificial environment. In every school, we must have a garden. In every school, one day a week, every school should go out in nature and forest. And don't go with cameras. Don't go with your iPad. Don't go with your cam uh, um, uh, iPhone. Uh, don't go with any even pen and paper. Just go and observe nature through your eyes. Your eyes are your cameras. Through your heart. Through just touch the trees. Touch the soil. Um, go in the water. Experience nature. Learn by experiencing, not just by head, you know, facts and figures in your book or on your television screen or your computer screen, but experiencing nature. That's how nature deficit disorder can be reduced or removed. And therefore, little organizations, young people starting uh, in their own way. Um, so I've got a couple more questions. Yeah. Um, what was I going to ask next? Oh, so I wanted to ask next what some of your um, most kind of memorable or meaningful experiences have been in the countryside in this country or with wildlife or perhaps anywhere in the world? Now, my most beloved uh, countryside in Britain is Devon and particularly Dartmoor. Uh, I made a film for the BBC on Dartmoor called Earth Pilgrim mm. and one of the reasons that I am attracted to live in Devon is because of Dartmoor. I go there or almost every week, um, um, if not every fortnight. And, and, and for my birthday, I go to Dartmoor as my birthday celebration. And whenever I have a holiday time or weekends, I go and stay on Dartmoor. So my love is Dartmoor. And there are many, many beautiful spots, the River Dart and many, many tours and many, many woods and so on. Uh, but particularly when I'm teaching at Schumacher College, I take my students with me to walk on uh, Wisman's Woods because there I can go on open tours there, um, uh, white, uh, uh, higher white tour, lower white tour and all those tours are very open, uh, wild and beautiful and, and a kind of all embracing um, open uh, landscape. And then also you can go down and then it's a beautiful oak wood, mm. Wisman's Woods, and the rocks and the moss and the kind of magic of that uh, wood and, and the kind of mystery as well because you don't know the history. You don't know what has gone on there. The Druids love it and the religious people go there. I go and meditate there. It's a kind of mystical experience that I can feel there. It's almost like a presence of divine there something very magical and mysterious so and then i can go to the river dart down there and it's a flowing river very strong sometimes very cold but rocks and slippery and and so on and i go in the water and i just immerse in the water it's shallow water but quiet and calm and nobody there and mm -hmm. so for for my experience of dartmoor is the best and this is where i feel most relaxed most at home and, and most in myself, and most spiritual. This is why I say um, Dartmoor is my cathedral. I don't need to go to Sartre or St. Paul's or, <laughs> or Canterbury. I just go to Dartmoor. Um, 
And you've, you say you go there for your birthday celebrations. You've got a birthday coming up soon? Yes, my 80th birthday is coming soon and I will be spending whole week on that. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, whole week. <laughs> um, where do you see, where do you think the countryside and wildlife in this country might be in, say, in the year 2050 or in 50 years' time? Where do you think we're headed? I am afraid and I fear it and I shake my body nature is being endangered. There is obsession in our country, but also in Europe, in industrialized countries. There's obsession to build, build, build. Mm. More roads, more airports, more cities, more housing, more industrial estates, more business parks, more supermarkets. We see land as undeveloped mm. until you put concrete on it and when you put concrete on it you say it's developed mm. and when it's a pristine clean natural soil grass wildlife rocks trees forests it's undeveloped or unimproved unimproved <laughs> unimproved yeah. so this is the danger so i fear that the trend is going in the wrong direction and and this demand for we don't use our built environment frugally and properly. The built environment we use, not enough. And so um, offices are sitting empty um, week, weekends, uh, overnight, um, and, and you use certain rooms only for one meeting a week. Uh, underused built environment. And, and therefore people say we have a lack of housing, but there are lots of empty houses and they are not used. Uh, unoccupied houses and so I think we need a new consciousness where we say use your built environment as efficiently as possible and only build new housing and new environment if it's absolutely necessary because it's a small island if you build 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 how far will you build mm. and we need our food from the, from the land we need some space for the wildlife we need so there's a beautiful book by George Mombio about rewilding. Yes, I've yeah. read it. That's yeah. a wonderful book. And I think we need to go in that direction mm. rather than this more urbanization, more industrialization, more uh, roads, more fast trains, and more airports, and so on and so on. And so um, I'm not so enthusiastic to think about 2050 and where Britain will be in terms of nature and wildlife. Uh, we are at a risk and we need to, we need to be alert and National Trust and Wildlife Trust, they need to really campaign to stop this overbuilding and campaign for uh, CPRE, mm. uh, campaign for rural uh, England. Rural England. Yes. They need to work harder to influence and impress and, and, uh, and inspire people to build less and celebrate and enjoy countryside more. I read George's book when um, I lived in Indonesia for a year and I lived in the jungle for a year. Yeah. And I read George's book when I was sitting in our camp surrounded by yeah. pristine rainforest. Yes. And it was very it was very kind of poignant that he <laughs> writes about and I was reading about, you know, in the UK and in Western countries we've got rid of all our forests. Yes, exactly. And yeah. we're now going to you know, southern in or Britain, undeveloped countries and doing the same. Hardly any wild places are left mm. which are untouched by human influence and human footprint. But do you think um, a lot of a lot of very respectable people turn the blame on overpopulation and i find that a bit troubling do you think that's correct or do you think it's a bit of a red herring or um 
overpopulation is not as big a problem as it is the heavy footprint mm. of humans. Mm. Uh, I am in favor of educating people to reduce numbers. Mm. I am in favor of people having no more than one or two children at the most. One, enough. Two, most. No more than two. That will be my uh, education. But it has to be done by education. But more important problem is our footprint on the planet Earth. Even if you have um, less numbers of people, but everybody has two cars, and everybody has a private jet, and everybody has um, kind of uh, a, a room full of shoes, and room full of clothes, and room full of this, and room full of that. You hardly use them, they're just waiting in the attic, and just kind of rotting. That kind of consumerist lifestyle is increasing, and nobody's checking that. Nobody's talking about reducing our consumption. They say our consumerism is the driving uh, engine, driving force um, for our economy. Mm. That's completely wrong, completely wrong. So I think uh, the emphasis need to be equally, if not more, on our footprint. It's a very heavy footprint on the planet Earth. Mm. Um, we've spoken a little bit about the kind of troubling times that we live in, yeah. ec ecologically, yeah. politically as yeah. well. And yeah. There are lots of problems where things have improved, but they yeah. haven't, you know, yeah. haven't come far enough. Yeah. Um, but you've also written, in the past at least, that you're an optimist, not a pessimist. I'm an optimist. What, to, what to makes be, you hopeful today? To be an activist, yeah. you have to be an optimist. Because mm. if you are a pessimist, you cannot be an activist. And I want to be, remain an activist until the last breath of my life. I don't want to give up uh, hope. I, uh, this is a kind of courage and hope that we need. Because... Uh, Things can change, and things have changed. We have talked about that slavery was ended, apartheid was ended, racial um, uh, discrimination is going downhill, the gender discrimination is going downhill, and the situations are getting better. And the Berlin Wall came down. Many, many good, uh, the imperialism has gone, more or less. Colonialism has gone, more or less. There are many good things have happened. They give us hope that we can change things. So I'm an optimist, and this is why I say that National Trust, Wildlife Trust, uh, WWF, Friends of the Earth, Greenpeace, um, uh, CPRE, all these groups and organizations must put their acts together, must get their act together and work together to build a big movement uh, for the protection of wildlife, protection of natural um, England, and, uh, and protection of the environment. Uh, that is our uh, great challenge, and I'm optimist that we will come together. It is moving in that direction, and therefore uh, I'm hopeful. I think that's everything that I wanted to ask. Is there anything else you want to share or to say? No, I think I think we have done it. That's <laughs> enough. Enough. Yeah. Okay. So, um, great. so tell Thank me a little you. bit more about where are you living now and and, and your 